identities are complex and we we're, we all uh, relate to and connect with different things and um, sometimes we we try we somehow reject that but I think the more we embrace the complexity of our identities and the various layers that make us who we are um, the healthier we we are and the happier we can be. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Amani Haydar is a writer and artist whose work is sparked to a large extent uh, by two tragedies, uh, the loss of her grandmother and the loss of her mother. Uh, Amani Haydar's book, The Mother Wound, talks about those experiences and how they shaped her. Uh, she is uh, a wise and thoughtful creator and somebody whose insights I think we can all learn from. Uh, Amani Haida, thanks for joining me on the Good Life podcast today. Thanks, Andrew, and thank you for that very generous introduction. So let me start with those two stories of your, your remarkable grandmother and your extraordinary mother. Um, Tell us, tell us about your, your grandmother and uh, about the, the awful tragedy that befell her. So my grandmother uh, lived in the south of Lebanon all her life. She was a seamstress. She had studied in Beirut. She was um, a very intelligent, proactive woman and who was well known for her, for her skills in sewing. Um, unfortunately, she lost her life in 2006 during the war in South Lebanon in an incident where Israeli missiles were um, where Israeli missiles attacked a group of civilian convoys, cars leaving the South in search of safety. Um, the incident that she was killed in was investigated as a potential war crime. It was reported internationally. I think 12 people lost their lives in the same event. And it was devastating because I'd met her about six months beforehand. I'd met her when I was younger, but I'd been visiting six months beforehand and spent some time with her and really became attached to this loving, playful, uh, joyous figure to be around and the, the unconditional love that grandparents give can be really special and I was a teenager at the time and I remember feeling a deep sense of belonging in her home a sense of acceptance um, and a real sense of peace and unfortunately that was disrupted soon after I left um, Lebanon and came back to Australia and I think for a lot of people who've experienced war atrocities there's never really any sense of closure or procedure that follows. So it can be very hard to come to terms with that kind of devastation um, and sort of move on from it. Yes, and as I was reading it, I was thinking about how it must shape your attitudes towards towards Israel and, and how uh, that reminded me of, of the emotions that people in Australia must have felt at the end of World War II towards those of Japanese or German uh, background, uh, how, 
and how, how do you think about Israel, given that it was an Israeli drone strike that, that killed your grandmother? Um, and as you've said, in a, in a car which had white sheets marking that uh, they were civilians. I think it's really important to contextualise this one incident within the history of the occupation in Palestine, the history of um, incidents that have taken place against civilians throughout that. And within the, within the context of the recent report that by Amnesty International, which has which is the latest of a bunch of different reports um, referring to the occupation as a form of apartheid. And I really look to the Palestinian activists in Australia for inspiration and for, for their resilience and for their deep sense of commitment to justice and the fact that everybody deserves to live with a sense of safety. People deserve to be connected to their land, to their heritage and to their history. And I think it's, I think it's beautiful to picture a world outside of that violence and outside of that, um, that exploitation. You grew up in uh, Bexley in, uh, in, in Sydney. Did you feel a great degree of connection to, uh, to Lebanon as you were growing up? Oh, that, it's such a complex thing. I think, you know, being born in Australia and raised in Australia, it's really hard to foster um, a, a, a real sense of connection. And I know that a lot of children of migrants have complex relationships with their homelands but I visited when I was four and I visited again as a teenager and there was something really special about connecting to you know a place where your family has originated from connecting to the culture uh, feeling a real sense of ease amongst people where you don't really have to explain yourself the way you might have to in Australia you don't have to justify your identity or your beliefs or anything like that there is really something um, special about that and I think it's important that we move away from this idea that you have to belong or be committed to just one place I think our identities are complex and we we're, we all uh, relate to and connect with different things and um, sometimes we we try we somehow reject that but I think the more we embrace the complexity of our identities and the various layers that make us who we are um, the healthier we we are and the happier we can be and tell us uh, about your mum. She was uh, quite a bit younger than your dad, I understand. Yes. Yeah, so my parents meet, met in sort of the, tr the standard traditional way that a lot of couples met um, in their context. My mum had just finished high school. My dad had already been living in Australia for about 10 years um, and he decided to go back to Lebanon in search of a wife. And um, they met through family connections. They'd been raised in the same town. They had mutual acquaintances and it was um, really normal and um, I guess accepted that people would meet through mutual connections and that fostered a sense of trust. It fostered a sense of um, familiarity. Um, but unfortunately, one of the things that can happen in those situations is it, it can be really hard to identify red flags. It can be really hard to get to know someone without all the different individuals being present. Um, and when, when women in particular are migrating without skills or ex work experience or their own independent um, income, they're in a position of particular vulnerability when it comes to abuse. So I think my mum's experience um, was one in which she had a great deal of 
um, excitement and a sense of hope and a sense of adventure when she met my dad and loved the idea of moving overseas and the opportunities that could provide for someone who'd grown up, grown up in war and with instability. But unfortunately, when she arrived, I think she quickly came to realize that she was disappointed both in him and his behavior and also I think in how hard it was to navigate a new life here and how hard motherhood was without her family and without her mother and they're things that I've spent a lot of time reflecting on um, having you know become a mum a few years ago myself and thought about how valuable it is to have those support ne networks and how all of society really plays a role in, in the upbringing of children and in their safety. How was your parents' relationship while you were growing up? Oh, it was always difficult to describe. I thought of them as incompatible because you don't always... Um, as, as the child in a relationship. And one of the things that I speak about often in my advocacy is that children are not always empowered to identify abuse, especially the more insidious forms of abuse, like emotional abuse and psychological abuse and coercive control, which we're only just beginning to really understand, um, you know, at a research level and an expert level and respond to adequately. For, for young people, um, often there's you know, the romanticizing of abusive relationship dynamics in films and popular culture. There is lots of mixed messaging about how men should behave and how women should behave that come from different places that might come from cultural context or your social context or your peers at school. So I never defined my dad as abusive and he didn't fit a stereotype that I had in my mind that was based on an abuser being someone who was drug and alcohol dependent, for example, or someone who was uneducated or someone who was always outwardly and physically violent. And I think it's, I think, I think I've come to really um, understand in hindsight, the, the subtle forms of abuse that my mum experienced within her relationship, the put downs, the things that really chipped away at her sense of self and her sense of confidence. And they're really important things to highlight and um, uh, red flags that she would have identified but would have struggled to describe to other people. Your mother did eventually separate somewhat from your father, didn't she? And how, how did do you think that separation was going to go? Yeah, so my mum uh, gradually built up the skills and the knowledge that she needed and this sense of financial independence that she needed to make um, steps towards separation. And she vocalised her... Um, needs and she vocalized that she was unhappy within the relationship and my parents even sold the family home and bought separate um, properties at that point she moved into her own villa and within that process of separating my father convinced her that he should move in with her and we know from the research that it takes women an average of seven to nine times to leave an abusive relationship and often people ask um you know why didn't she leave why didn't she leave my mum did take all those steps all those um steps that brought her closer and closer to finally leaving the relationship and still struggled with those final bits of control that my dad had and also the idea that she would look like a bad mother if she left or she would have failed as a wife or she had failed to keep her family together and all the uncertainty that comes with having to depend on yourself when you've been in a relationship for a long time. I think all of those things go into the way that people navigate um, uh, abusive relationships and the decision-making that comes before um, taking that risk. And it is a risk because we also know that the 
two to three weeks immediately after a separation are the biggest um, period of risk for women in terms of um, escalations in violence, in terms of homicide taking place. So, and, and people are smart enough to sense that and really uh, victim survivors tend to have a lot of um, insight and sensitivity about what might um, put them at risk and how they might be able to uh, protect themselves for that little bit longer. So it is, it's a really complex situation. And despite the privileges and the um, support that my mum was able to access and the knowledge that she had as a trained counsellor and the professional um, people that she would have been able to access and speak to, um, she still didn't see that as, she, I guess she didn't identify how violent my dad could be in, in a way that that seemed really realistic or immediate. Um, and that's that's a really difficult thing to imagine. You don't think that the people that you've lived with for years are going to be capable of things that you've only seen in films or on TV. So then he tra- travelled to, uh, to Lebanon and uh, suddenly returned unexpectedly. Uh, what happened then? Um, so on the day that he returned from a trip overseas to visit his old mother, um, was, that was the day that my mum was attacked in her house by my dad and he was already there when she got home from work they ended up in some kind of argument and he attacked her in the kitchen and only my youngest sister was home at the time and she was 18 and she fought him um, so bravely and was injured in the process and when when I got the call that something had happened at my parents house I you know, had this awful sense of doom that came with that. But I did not think that my mum would have passed away or that the, that I didn't really comprehend the extremity of the violence that my dad was capable of until it had sunken in a little while later. And I guess that's another thing that's, that's important to flag um, in terms of, I guess, raising awareness about the fact that nonviolent abuse can switch to violent abuse. It doesn't always escalate in a gradual manner. It can um, immediately change. And um, I think the research that's being done in order to understand um, DV homicides better is really valuable. And ANROS released a report just recently that shows us that people who commit homicides in a DV context don't necessarily fit the stereotypes I mentioned earlier, often don't have a history of abuse or any kind of criminal record. And up to, I think about 30% of the people in the cases reviewed, of the, of the perpetrators in the cases reviewed, were middle-class men who would, had never been flagged to any kind of agency, would never have been picked up as a potential risk. And I think we need to look at how we prevent these acts of violence in that demographic, since it's so hard to spot. The bravery of your sister, Ola, and uh, fighting off your father is... Uh, is quite extraordinary to read about uh, because the the attack was just brutal and it's uh, in in the in the severity uh, I don't know how much you're comfortable talking about what your father did what I will say is I think sometimes when acts of extreme violence and particularly in the gender-based violence context um, take place, there is a temptation for media to sensationalise those events and to really highlight the awful things that happened to these women in the last moments of their lives. And I know it's very confronting for me to sit through the trial, to read the judgment in order to write my book, um, to really 
accept that that kind of violence can take place um, and can be committed by someone who you have looked up to in the past or who's part of your family, there's a huge sense of betrayal that comes with that. But one of the things that I often um, say and also hear, hear other victim survivors say is that they prefer to focus on the life of the person that they've lost because they were a lot more than that final moment. They were a lot more than that product of violence. Um, they were a lot more than what was inflicted upon them. And so often I, I say that, you know, I celebrate my mum's resilience, her agency, her intelligence. Um, the things that she achieved in her life were just amazing against a lot of barriers and she was only 45 years old when she died and that's far too young and she was the 30th of 80 or 81 women who lost their lives violently in Australia that year um, so it's always turning back and looking beyond that violence and beyond what the perpetrator has done to towards how can we do better as a society well thank you for pushing back on my question there I do I do appreciate that the day after your mother was killed, you had an experience in the hospital, which uh, sounds almost almost spiritual. Tell us about that experience. I, I really love writing about my spirituality and you know connecting those dots for people. And I, I think I think that can be a great source of hope, and it can also be a great source of meaning. And one of those moments that I describe in my book, the one that you've just mentioned, uh, my mum was was involved in in. Um, a lot of community health projects and um, she was a counsellor with the quit line at St Vincent's Hospital, had done a lot of stuff in communities supporting people to better understand their health and to basically get health related information out to uh, multicultural communities and she'd been part of this campaign where they'd taken photos and made up a poster and I don't even remember the name of the campaign but as I was standing at the Sydney hospital where my sister was having hand surgery because of her injury and I was feeling really unwell because I was five months pregnant I was in a state of shock and grief and also feeling physically sick um, I decided to admit myself to hospital and while I was standing there waiting to fill out my paperwork or give over my Medicare card I looked up and my mum's picture was in a poster that was hanging on a billboard right above where I was standing and I remember thinking, this is a bizarre coincidence. <laughs> and, and I didn't know what to say to the lady behind the desk. I was like, what? This wouldn't mean anything to her. Um, but it was just one of those moments where, you know, without sounding too far-fetched, where you kind of feel the presence of that person that you love, you feel their influence on the world around them. And you just think, how many lives did they touch? And how many positive things did they achieve during their lives? And I think you know, whilst it was a really sad moment, there is something bittersweet about remaining connected with your loved ones after they've passed away. And I think that's the little reflection that comes from that moment. What did others do for you in the days following the loss of your mother? Uh, for those of us looking to provide support to someone who's undergone a tragedy, uh, what lessons can we learn from people who supported you in good ways or, or maybe even not so good ways? So in terms of the good stuff, there were people who just showed up, who did the rituals, the, the, the Muslim burial rituals with us in a way that was respectful and dignified and in a way that made space for our grief because different people express grief differently. I really appreciated a friend making me a shepherd's pie and dropping it off at my house. 
without me asking. I think I always remember that. And I think that was such a beautiful and helpful gesture. I remember some people setting up um, a fundraiser with Western Sydney University um, students that my mum was studying with at the time. That was incredibly generous of them and made us feel supported, even though we had members of my dad's family who weren't being supportive, who were being judgmental, who were asking those questions um, about, well, why didn't she leave? And um, why can't you support your father? And he's obviously going through something. And I, I, I get really exasperated describing those moments because instead of directing their empathy to the victims um, and the people, you know, the, 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 the family members who, who are grieving, they were directing their focus towards the perpetrator. And often that also happens um, in the media. It can happen just in general conversation. It's a very um, pervasive attitude. And I think showing care is through acts of kindness and ger generosity without having to wait um, to be asked. And I, I always remember fondly the people who, who were there for us um, because it was a really difficult time. And, you know, we, we thankfully, my sisters and I were able to access support from organisations like the Homicide Victims Support Group, um, from people at the hospital, um, from some of my mum's family members, but we also faced a lot of the same um, insensitivity that, that people face um, when an act of gender-based violence takes place. A couple of years later, your father came to trial. Uh, you talk about the process of giving evidence as being like walking on broken glass, um, even although that you're a, a trained and at that stage practicing lawyer. Uh, why, why was it so tough? Well, firstly, I, it was the first time that I'd encountered my father since before the murder. I hadn't seen him in that two-year period. I'd not really been able to imagine what the courtroom would be like in such a heightened situation. And it was incredibly intimidating. A lot of his family members who were there to support him were present in the courtroom. There was media. I was worrying about my sisters. I had um, kids by this point that, you know, that I had to leave at home. I was thinking about the future. I was thinking about, well, how do I do justice to my mum? What power do I even have? And how do I speak in this room full of people when I've never even talked about abuse with my dad? I've never confronted him in that way, let alone about an act as, as horrific as what he'd done. So it was really intimidating. It was, it was really difficult to um, observe his indifference. I think that was really difficult as well because you think people are going to be remorseful. You have all these assumptions in your mind about what guilt should look like and to be confronted with something different to that is really um, can be a bit overwhelming. And despite my legal training, despite having despite having been in courtrooms, it was still the probably the hardest part of my experience um, and was really re-traumatizing. And what what I hear from a lot of victim survivors is that the courtroom can be um, a really difficult space to navigate and can be really re-traumatizing in terms of your mental health and your recovery. You also got to give a uh, victim impact statement, which, as you write in your book, uh, finished with saying that uh, your mother's three daughters would keep her book of good deeds open uh, and that your father couldn't kill that. 
did you did you find the process of doing the victim impact statement um, to be better than the process of, of giving evidence itself? Yes, I think some of that suspense and that build up by that point had uh, settled a little bit. I'd had time to prepare. I obviously wasn't, I wasn't cross-examined on my victim impact statement. So I felt like I'd had my say. Um, it was, it was empowering to a degree, but we know that also victim impact statements follow a number of rules. They, um, there are limitations. So whilst it felt good to finally get something off my chest, I did have a moment where I was like, there's, there's so much more to say. There's going to be so much to write about. And I think it really was the process of thinking about and writing that victim impact statement played a huge role in making me a writer. What was the result of the court case? He was found guilty of murder um, and sentenced. I always forget the breakdown of the sentence, but um, I think it was about 18 years. Um, so I think in the Australian context, that's sort of a pretty um, to be expected outcome. There are some outcomes from about 20 years ago that are shocking and awful where um, men have murdered their wives and been able to argue that she's provoked them or that they that that the charge should be reduced to manslaughter. And I think we're starting to get a much better appreciation of how serious domestic abuse is and how important it is to um, recognize the the value of the lives of the victims and and give that um, acknowledgement to their families. In the uh, period after the court case, there was quite a lot of media attention around uh, uh, the fact that um, uh, your fa family is, uh, is, is Muslim. And I guess it was one of the issues when I spoke to Rosie Batty about the experience that, that she had with her losing her son Luke, um, there's that added dimension of Islamophobia that comes across uh, in, in your case. Uh, how did you navigate that of, of telling the story of your mum, uh, responding in, in, in public, but also being aware that there were people who would use that in order to incite hatred of, of Muslims in Australia? You know, initially I was really reserved and really reluctant to speak to anyone. I knew that I wasn't in a good place in terms of my mental health. I wasn't in a good place in terms of my confidence and in my own ability to um, speak out and, and be understood. And I grew up, I was 15 or 16 when 9-11 happened. I grew up with that war on terror discourse. I grew up with Muslims being um, disparaged in the media almost daily. I, I have memories of long periods where it was to be expected that that's what we would see on the evening news. And I think that's affected members of my generation in our, in our trust, in terms of dealing with the media, in our you know, our, our ability to navigate something that can be, you're, you're already quite vulnerable when you've experienced a crime and you've been victimized, then to add a layer of the potential re-victimization that comes with, um, you know, a racist response or an Islamophobic response, that's a lot of pressure and a huge burden to, to put on people who are grieving or experiencing PTSD or experiencing any kind of upheaval in their lives. So, I held back until I felt that I was ready to speak on my own terms and 
I really believe in empowering victim survivors to be able to tell their stories should they choose to do so. I really believe in um, challenging the racist assumptions that sometimes play a role in our conversations around DV and crime. And I think gradually we're starting to make some headway. We're adopting a more intersectional lens that helps us appreciate that um, not all women have the same experiences or priorities or perspectives, but all of their experiences um, deserve to be um, accommodated for when it comes to their health and their safety. And we need to widen what we provide and widen the supports available rather than narrowing them down. And we need to account for cultural factors because at the end of the day, the, the utmost priority is empowering that individual and helping them to, to live the best life that they can possibly lead. So I think we're making some promising progress, um, but I think there's a lot of work to be done before the diversity of the media reflects the diversity of our society, where before we can have conversations like this with the level of complexity and nuance that they deserve. You say in the book that you started wearing the hijab around that time. Why was that? It's, it's a funny question because um, I guess in the grand scheme of my life, it was quite minor, <laughs> quite a minor event. And sometimes there's an assumption that it's a major decision. I remember my daughter was about two or three weeks, weeks old and we were about to head out for my first doctor's appointment after I'd given birth. And I was trying to get dressed and I threw on a scarf around my neck and then I changed my mind and I put it on my head and I just felt comfortable and I felt that I was expressing myself authentically and you know a lot of people see the hijab as something that hides or that disguises when in fact it can be seen as a form of self-expression and um, I guess more of me is on the outside now so so for me that was the feeling that came with that decision and that might not be everyone's experience but um, I think yeah I think that day I made the right choice. <laughs> uh as you went through uh, dealing with the, with the almost unimaginable experience of uh, your father murdering your mother, uh, what did you find most useful in the healing process? Was there therapy that played a, a valuable role? Um, did, you, did you find there were particular things that, uh, uh, that others were able to do to help you in that journey? Yeah, so my mum was a mental health practitioner and advocate. So she had done some of the work, I think, to remove the sense of taboo that sometimes goes with getting help. Um, I immediately accepted professional support from anyone who offered it. So like I said, we were put in touch with the Homicide Victims Support Group who do amazing work with people um, across New South Wales who've experienced uh, the death of a loved one due to a homicide my counsellor there was able to support me with the bits of paperwork that needed to be done, with understanding what would happen next, liaising with the prosecutor, understanding the, the steps that would unfold in the proceedings and things like that. And that was really valuable. You need a bit of support from someone who's seen it all before. And I think that was really crucial to my experience of recovery. And I subsequently accessed counselling um, from the victim from victim services which was also really valuable and that was after my dad's trial because a lot of the progress I'd made had really been 
disrupted by the experience of the trial. And I felt that it was important to speak to someone again and move forward from that experience. And sometimes counseling is expensive, difficult to access, doesn't always work out. You might not find the right counselor for you, but I think it's really important to stick with it. I think it's really important that government make it as accessible as possible to as many people as possible. I sit on the board of the Bankstown Women's Health Centre in my local um, area at the moment. And I know that there is such need, and especially among women who've experienced abuse, to be able to process those experiences in a safe place, to be able to recover, not just from the mental health impacts, but from the physical impacts as well, because there's a relationship between our mental well-being and our physical well-being. And I've been really lucky to have had a positive experience. And that doesn't mean it's always been easy, but I have been able to access the support that works for me. Um, we know from the research that children who've witnessed DV might need lifelong counselling. We know that um, there are currently, as far as I'm aware, no specialised trauma recovery centres for women who've experienced abuse in our state. I think the Illawarra Women's Health Centre is working on establishing one, but that would be such a valuable resource for people who've been through what I've been through. You began to uh, do, dive more deeply into your art in this period too. Uh, had you always been artistic? Yes, I think so. I, I was always creative, but I'd never thought of it as a career, nor was it really encouraged. Um, I was encouraged to pursue traditional forms of success, um, to be a doctor or a teacher. I settled on the law because I felt that there was a good balance between the expectations that I, that I was navigating and my own interests. And I, I loved being a lawyer. I still have so much um, passion for how the law shapes people's lives and how it responds to their lives. But I think using art came in, it, it was such an instrumental part of my healing process. It allowed me to do what I wanted without rules or expectations. There was a sense of freedom that came with my creativity. There was a sense of, there's something really grounding about being able to use your hands and create without any sort of deadline or um, any kind of expectation that you produce something wonderful. And that's what I did. It was, it, was, it was a private pursuit for a while and my kids would nap and I would pull out my supplies and just draw for as long as I could. And then I started feeling comfortable enough to share. And when I started sharing, I really saw the power of art to build empathy and to connect people. And as a form of storytelling, I felt that was really powerful. And it was a way that I could engage with the world that felt safe um, and comfortable for me. Your entry in the Archibald Prize was called Insert Headline Here. Uh, what did it depict? So in 2018, I submitted a portrait to the Archibald Prize, not thinking it would be a finalist, but to my delight, it was chosen as a finalist. And it was a self-portrait. And in it, I'm holding a picture of my mum. And in that picture, she's holding a picture of her mum. And the photo I used is copyrighted to Fairfax. And I printed it straight off my computer. And it was taken back in 2006 when the media was interviewing my mum about the death of my grandmother. And at that time, my mum had been so sad and so uh, devastated by her loss. And yet she found 
the the power she needed to speak about what had happened to her mum and say this was not okay and really express that and share that with the public in a way that I think is really brave and I wanted to create this image that would tell the story of you know myself my mum and my grandmother and encompass everything that had happened in just a singular image which is really hard to do because it's a lot of stuff but um it, it kind of formed in my mind and I thought well why not just paint it and submit it and see what happens and I think that ended up being a really good decision because it was my first real opportunity to speak up about what had happened, to invite the public to engage with me in a dialogue that that was meaningful. So you're now bo both a, a writer and an artist. How do you find those two different creative processes? It's really interesting to me. I think art came to me uh, more impulsively and more naturally, but the more I write, the more I realize the power that it holds in terms of, um, the, you know, making stories accessible to other people, making lives accessible to other people. I don't see my two creative processes as being entirely separate either. Often um, I'm painting about something and then I get an idea for a bit of writing or vice versa. So there's almost an interplay between the two. And I, I feel constantly that there is so much inspiration and so much to draw on and so many stories to be told. And I think that really feeds into um, both my creative practices. Do you do both on the same day or you t do you typically have a painting day and a, and a writing day? I try to be organised about it and dedicate time and days, but sometimes I just feel that I need to do both. And at the moment I'm preparing for an exhibition which will open at the end of March in Melbourne at Schoolhouse Studios. And there's so much painting to be done that I, I have often found myself writing, painting, doing my admin, looking after my kids, cooking, <laughs> all of those things in one day. So it's a bit chaotic over here at the moment, but I've learned to embrace that and just make do and do what I can and create whenever I can. Do you, uh, do you tend to move mediums at all or is it all oils? So I've, I've painted in acrylics more than I have in oils, but I'm working on some oil paintings at the moment. I, I use a, a wide range of mediums. I've even made a tapestry previously. I've done some, um, I've made a stop motion film for one of my exhibitions, but I tend to enjoy bright color and a lot of texture and a lot of layers. So I consider myself a mixed media artist, but I, I really lean into painting. And at the moment I'm working with both um, acrylics and oils. It sounds like for your Archibald entry that the idea was pretty well formed when you began painting. Is, is that true of the typical painting you do or do you find that your, some of your paintings really evolve a lot uh, from the, the point at which you begin them? They often evolve and even that painting evolved. I think initially I had um, a different background in mind and I ended up painting it just a plain black. I also had to uh, come up with the pattern that would be on the garment in that painting that I'm wearing. And I wanted that to be vibrant and sort of reminiscent of mosque tiles and these floral motifs. 
I hardly ever plan all of the details of a painting before I start. I prefer to paint than draw. So, <laughs> so I like to go straight at the canvas and just see what happens. But I usually have some idea, at least a theme or a concept in mind or even a shape or a form that's taking place um, before, I, before I get started. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not well known for my meticulous planning. <laughs> as a, uh, a mum, how do you find uh, the amount of time that you need to focus on painting? Uh, is there some kind of minimum period that you need in front of the easel in order to, uh, to, to make a contribution? Oh, I wish I could spend all day. <laughs> I wish I could spend all day painting, but we know that that's not the reality. And we know that throughout history, women creatives have struggled to carve out that time and that solitude that you need to be creative. But I've learned to build it into our lives. I, my, my home is filled with my work. My studio, my writing space are all part of the open plan living area. So my kids have been able to be exposed to the creative process. And I think that's a wonderful thing. I think that really enriches our home environment. They get to see a painting from just blank canvas to while it's in progress. And then they get to go to the exhibition and see it hanging. And I think that's an amazing thing to, to share with them. Um, that said, I would love a big studio of my own. Um, but I, but I do, I do believe that often we wait for the right time to be creative. And if we keep waiting for the right time and the right space, then many years will pass by and we will not have expressed that creativity. So my approach now is to paint when you can, <laughs> write when you can, um, be devoted to your craft and let everything else come along with it. What are you writing at the moment? I've just finished writing a story that's going to be in an anthology that I can't talk about yet but it's about it's an anthology that'll be about um lived experience of mental illness and um I think it'll be a really raw collection of stories so I've written about um a really therapeutic enlightening experience that I had at a trauma recovery retreat not that long ago um I'm also working on some fiction. I've got a piece of fiction that'll be featured in a book later this year and hoping to write a novel next. One of the things that struck me about The Mother Wound was uh, your, your discussion of anger. Uh, tell me about your views on anger. I think anger can be such a tremendous tool for inspiring positive change and I think too often we have taboo and shame around anger because we see it only as the form of anger that is destructive rather than as an emotion that can be channeled in in various directions so for me one of the things I've learned is not to be embarrassed or pressured to to behave a particular way um, when I'm angry, you know, some, some things we, we need to be angry about some things. There are lots of injustices in our world that deserve our attention, deserve our anger and deserve our action. And I think that's really um, important in, in any situation we're facing. Right? There are floods in northern New South Wales right now and there are, there's global crisis and war and we need to allow those things to take up space in our minds and we need to think through them properly. And I think anger should be part of the response and I know that for a lot of women, their anger ends up being suppressed because they're pressured to behave in a really dignified, graceful, um, you know, smiling all the time kind of way. But what I learned was that doesn't actually serve you. It tends to serve 
the perpetrator or the oppressor and it 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 maintains the status quo instead of agitating things and demanding for for you know making demands for solutions so i really unlearned that as much as i can i'm still a nice person but <laughs> but um but i really don't I don't shame people for their anger when it's justified. And I think it's really important that we learn how to embrace anger in a way that's healthy and in a way that makes us proactive citizens. Even before Grace Tame visited the lodge, uh, you uh, were critical of a society that says that uh, women should smile more. Uh, what's your view on uh, those who, who ask women to smile? Yes. Um, I thought that was such an in in interesting incident and the discourse that unfolded afterwards was so predictable. I'd written, I think it's almost a whole chapter in The Mother Wound where I talk about um, the pressure to smile and how disarming that can be and how inappropriate it can be when there is, when, when there's something important or serious to talk about and where there's a need for accountability. So I think there, I think in that chapter, I mentioned the number of hits you get on Google when, when you look up um, men telling women to smile and um, the types of responses that artists and writers have had towards that. And I, I think there are absolutely times where it's completely inappropriate to smile. And um, I don't see that as, as being repugnant in any way. I think you need to express yourself authentically and address serious issues and hold people accountable rather than um, playing nice all the time. Marnie, what advice would you give to your teenage self? I think the advice I would give to my teenage self would be to be confident in who I am, to not have to work so hard to prove myself. I think we all have the tools and the resources we need within us to rise above challenges and I guess we're complete and fine as we are. And often as when we're young, we feel like we're incomplete and that we're constantly this work in progress. But I, I would like to tell my younger self that you're perfect just as you are. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? I used to feel a lot of pressure to justify my religious beliefs, my identity, my lifestyle choices to other people. And a lot of that comes from this conditioning where you've got to be this perfect ideal migrant. And I no longer subscribe to that. And that's very liberating. I like to talk about the things I'm interested in and I don't feel that I have to defend my choices and I'd much rather focus on constructive conversations and um, solving problems and making life better for all of us. When are you most happy? When I'm painting and when I cook a meal and my kids enjoy it. <laughs> What's the most important thing you do to stay mentally and physically healthy? Um, my art and my writing are a huge part of my healing process, part of my, um, I guess, resilience, but also accessing support when I need it without shame, talking about um, when I'm feeling depressed or anxious, identifying and recognizing those feelings can be so empowering. And I've learned to um, stay active when I can, um, to meditate. And I also depend on my faith for, for a real sense of hope and, and to be resilient on a day-to-day -day basis. Do you have any guilty pleasures? 
yes, I really like, <laughs> I really like this Southern fried chicken burger that the local place makes. And sometimes I'll order it three or four times a week on Uber Eats. And that's probably a bad choice. <laughs> but I had one just before this recording this podcast and I'm, I'm not ashamed. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> and finally, Mani, um, what person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? definitely my mum and my grandmother they they were so strong and bold and interesting and clever and they've you know I've started describing them as having given me the permission slip I need to do the work that I do. Mani Haider, author, artist and activist thanks so much for taking the time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you so much Andrew I really appreciate chatting with you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you like this episode, you might also appreciate past conversations with Rosie Batty, Rodney Vlace and Jess Hill. And if you appreciate the podcast in general, please tell a friend or mention it in social media. It really helps others find the podcast. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.